Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Heidi, and Heidi was raised by a controlling narcissistic father. It's a story of intergenerational trauma, scapegoats, enmeshment, fragmented identity, Minimization, Denial, and the Healing Journey. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Heidi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm doing well, and thank you for being here, Heidi. And if you want to be a guest like Heidi is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today we have a content warning for this episode as we do discuss sexual abuse in this episode and it is from uh, Heidi's parent and Heidi is not a child when this happens. So this is our content warning for this episode. And today you're going to hear Heidi's life story and she was the scapegoat of her family and you're going to hear and feel her whole life today, all of her struggles and the breakthroughs that she's had lately as well. So just a really big thank you to Heidi for being here. And now I'm going to get out of my way in your way. Heidi, the floor is now yours. Thank you. It's a bit strange being here and, and I've listened to your show quite a lot and it's really helped me with understanding the kind of family dynamic that I came from and how that's impacted me throughout my whole life really. And um, at the moment, I'm going through a really interesting phase of my life for the last year or so where a lot of the foundations that I've built in life have just crumbled. And also, I've got to the stage where things really came to a head with my family. And I've been going through, since the end of May, really, a kind of period of massive epiphany. It's just been astonishing I can't keep up quite with the amount of realizations the amount of aha moments the amount of piecing it all together which kind of happened quite suddenly recently and um, I'm tingling thinking about it my skin it's um, quite astonishing where I've come to in terms of 
you know, this, this mindset about who I am in relation to and individually in relation to my family has just kind of crumbled away and left like a kernel underneath of amazingly positive person who didn't know she existed completely. There's, they'll, you'll see there's kind of a transition of kind of aha moments throughout life, really, that kind of helped to piece together who I am. But I've spent the last 48 years, and I am 48, I feel like I was living in a cult. And I've just come out of a cult. And it is mind blowing. And at the same time, a lot of things like housing in the UK, the rental crisis, I had to move out of a house. I now have a completely different lifestyle living in a a truck, a converted truck in a field. So that's just a complete kind of upending of, you know, what you understand to be the security of, of where you live. At the same time, I've had to go no contact with my mum, my dad and my sister. And we'll get to that a little later on, but I'm really in a process of grieving, but also of kind of shedding a lot of the layers of, of, can I swear? Yes. <laughs> Crap that I've been carrying around, basically. So, so basically, I suppose I wanted to kind of start with um, earlier on in my life. I will explain, you know, the kind of traits in my dad and the dynamic as we go through. But I'm just thinking of an incident that kind of encapsulates really the bind I was in as a child because I wanted to go to my parents for comfort and I was met with abuse essentially emotional and physical violence um not all the time but a substantial portion of the time enough to have a devastating effect on my life and how I see myself and my capabilities and what I can and can't do really it's it's been quite hindering to go through what I've been through (laughs) Um, and it's my whole life. So it's it's mad that I'm figuring a lot of this out. And I think education's been really important because you it is such a you adopt such a kind of cloak of reality that's not yours. It kind of smothers your own and just I forgot where I was. It's okay that you forgot where you were, you know. For everyone that's listening, the story that you're about to hear is one of your denial and minimization of the of your actual existence. And yeah. I think that is uh, a big theme that everyone is going to hear today from your story. And mm-hmm. that you being the scapegoat of this family, you carried all of their stuff for them and that's right really and you're now going to I guess tell us a brief little bit about of who your parents were and where they came from because they're carrying whatever they had and they're gonna now unload it on you and eventually your sister does become part of that process as well yeah. um so I guess tell us who they are yeah so my dad uh, had me when he was 20 and my mum was 17 years old so they were very young and they came from dysfunctional families themselves from what little I really know about it because 
my mum wouldn't talk about the past. She was steadfastly, she would say, it's boring. I don't want to talk about it. You know, if you're having a drink with your family, you start kind of wanting to discover more about your life. Or when, when I was little, wanting to discover more about my mum's life, it was very much shut down. We didn't really talk about it. Um, my mum's mum committed suicide when I was one and so I put it down to just the trauma of that and you know that her life was very difficult I'm not going to go into it uh, specifically but you know her parents were he, her grand her, my granddad was an alcoholic he was fun he was great but you know I don't think he did a particularly good job as a parent and you know my grandma who I never don't remember was always in bed depressed and stuff for a lot of the time so you know you can kind of put two and two together and imagine what it must have been like for my mum to sort of grow up in I suppose a, a emotional neglect really might she might have experienced but there was nothing talked about of any kind of violence or anything so and that's my mum and so she left school at 15 and then met my dad when she was 16. Um, he was have, having an affair with her while seeing another woman he was seeing for four years. So he had my mum on the side and she absolutely adored him and she still does. She worships the ground he walks on and, you know, she knew about it Um I think she certainly did at some point and she accepted it because she loved him so much. And I think, you know, coming from a background where you are deprived of the care and the love that you need from a family, the, uh, somebody shows you affection, somebody kind of wants to be with you, you, you know, respond very well to that. And I think because her home life was so difficult, he was a way out of that at a very young age. Um, and she got pregnant with me. So she was just 17 when she got pregnant. And um, I remember working out that their wedding anniversary was in November and my I was born in February. So that kind of gave me an idea of the kind of circumstances of them getting together and how they I don't know if they were pressured to marry, but, but you know, God bless him. He did the the right thing for what you're supposed to do in the 1970s and, and married my mum. But she did tell me, or she, this is sort of a family story that I've absorbed, that he sat her down when they just got married and said, I don't love you. I might grow to love you. And my mum spent earlier years with me at home a lot of the time while my dad was out at the pub with her own father um because they became friends you know I know he was there but you know she has said in the past that you know she spent quite a bit of time dealing with things on her own and she's you know she can be quite an anxious person she's got this new child she's 17 years old you know it's like a bomb going off in your life when you have a child you know and being so young I mean she'd left school at 15 so she had more maturity than I did at 17 but still it must have been so hard for her and knowing that you're not you know loved like you want to be and being so in love must have also been very difficult and 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, for him, I was a bomb going off in the family that uh, it's, it's so complicated and so hard to explain the dynamic that enabled him to survive really through how he related to me, how he treated me. It's as if he's so far into his comfort zone and has to stay there or there is annihilation outside the walls of his, his comfort zone. He can't cope with any kind of environment that scratches against him, that interferes with his comfort, his viewing of the TV, his uh, laying on the only large sofa. So us girls are all on a small sofa, just this sort of way of, arranging us really in a kind of dynamic that that served his comfort so in comes a baby you know he was a trainee accountant and he had to give that up because the wages weren't as good so he became a bus driver and I, I used years later on in life trying to figure out why he treated me like he did I sort of thought well maybe he resented the fact that he had to give up a career you know that was one of my early kind of hypotheses because I have always had a niggling sense that things are wrong and it's driven me to figure it out anyway so I'm a baby I'm a bomb that goes off in in their world and I used to I was doing a PhD and studying a lot of like child psychology I was in the school of social work and and later impact of that and it's like parents are supposed to revolve around their children for care because you, their child is so vulnerable they can't look after themselves and someone like my dad everything had to revolve around him so instantly there's competition really for comfort and security and love but there wasn't any love to go around you know there really wasn't um so I've arrived and you know I, I can't really obviously remember much before my sister arrived which was two years later but I was a very, apparently, quite a jumpy child. Um, I didn't like to be left on a, in a room on my own. I always had abandonment feelings. I do remember abandonment dreams. And my mum once said to me, you couldn't be in a room on your own, but with a six-month-old baby, you were quite happy. And it's just, I think I developed this extreme, deep sense of like loneliness and that I didn't have proximity to someone or even like a, a a baby I just felt this chronic sort of sense of emptiness and abandonment you know one of the earliest sort of incidents that I remember where I was just abused frankly and this was sort of habitual was I was a little girl I must have been about four and I'm walking down the street with my dad and I was a chatty little girl. I was really eager to connect as well as being frightened and nervous. I just really loved people and like enjoyed seeing their faces light up in my presence. And I liked to interact and 
you know, I found that I think I had difficulty controlling that vivacity, that life force, whatever it was, because I just chunted on, chatting away, and I had my hands in my pockets and I fell over. Um, it's a little pea coat with patch pockets on the front, and I just smashed my forehead, total face plant. Obviously, I can imagine, I can't really remember, but there's this sort of, like kids do, this sort of sudden rising wail of like pain. And this is a sort of actions that would come next at things like this. He kind of towered down, lunging over me, roughly grabs an arm, yanks me up from the pavement, and I sort of spin around his legs because he's got older of one arm, you know, on tippy toes. And then he gives me a massive whack on my bum. And not only am I in pain because there's a like egg-sized lump rapidly forming on my forehead, I get slapped for it. And this sort of demonstrates the bind I was in. You know, you want comfort from the person that is causing you terror, essentially. And um, it's a very confusing place to be for a child. You know, it's not kind of a natural next reaction for someone that's supposed to love and care for you to suddenly just rain down violence on you and you know probably wasn't a massive whack but when you're a child and you're being smacked in a place that doesn't logically deserve that punishment you know it's a triviality I'm in pain you know and and what it was I worked out was because I had my hands in my pockets and he'd recently told me not to have my hands in my pockets that was the transgression and there were just so many pointless trivialities that used to just trigger this enormous rage in him that he would often meet down on me, sometimes my mum. My sister, two years younger than me, managed to sort of stay under the radar with him. Uh, With her, he played with her, he enjoyed her, she was his tomboy, and I remember this soul-crushing rejection of, like, they're playing and I go and like, join in and then the game stops. There's a scowl from him and, you know, it's all over and I can't really join in with the fun, you know. And it's really sad to sort of think of that little girl that went through all that, really. And um, I, I can't really figure where my mum was in this as well, really, a lot of it. Is it's sort of bystander at one end to, you know, joining in in some way, but a more kind of insidious, teasing, we were only joking, kind of little sort of thread of cruelty and sarcasm with her, really. Um, But certainly no intervention, really. There was one time, this is a classic example of the amount of intervention in my safety, really. There was one time when I must have been about nine, eight or nine, and I was petrified of absolutely everything. The dogs, thunder and lightning, my dad, the dark. I was just such a scared little girl. You know, I couldn't eat properly because my stomach was really clenched. And yet I was forced to stay at the table and squeeze food in me. Such an anxious kid, very skinny. So I'm in bed, a little single bed in a small box room. And there's a massive thunderstorm. And because I'm petrified of thunderstorms, I call out for help. Uh, silly me obviously <laughs> but I'm that scared of the thunderstorm that I, I risk the wrath of the beast you know so I call out and then there's this flinging open of his bedroom door a flinging open of my bedroom door hits the wall 
there's a big sort of three-tiered Cindy house next to my bed, and he just swipes his arm across the top of it, knocking it over, knocking all the toys and things out of it, and he's literally growling, you know, like, but I can't do it. But, you know, he is so apoplectic with rage because I've asked for help. This becomes a theme, really, with him, you know. My nervous system seems to trigger his nervous system. It, we don't fit, you know, and he just wants to just, he can't, I say he can't help himself, but I think he can, and I'll demonstrate that later. But, you know, there's this sense that I set off some kind of reaction in him, and I can't work out what that is, you know. <laughs> I'm doing reasonable things that a child would do to get, to get safety met, really, and I never could. I was so alone. My mum, basically, with that situation, I heard her shout from the bedroom, leave a light on for her. And that was her intervention. It's not, what are you doing? You're frightening her, you violent man, or stepping in. It was just such a normalised part of our family lives. So when it comes to your mom's relationship with your dad, how did that interaction go within their relationship? Is your mom, you know, equally as bad as him or is she just like enabling everything that's going on? Is she scared of him in any sort of way? And then in relation with you and your sister, at a very young age, is your sister already disliking you? Yeah, we'll get on to my sister in a minute. But yeah, my mum's relationship, like I touched on earlier, you know, with my dad, she's very, very in love with him. He is the centre of everything. As she, she had few friends when we were younger, like work friends or the odd person from her past. But as time's gone on, she doesn't need anyone. You know, she doesn't want any friends. She used to go out on work do sometimes, but, you know, she got older, she didn't. And, you know, they, they had a good life. They went on a couple of holidays a year. They went to music festivals because they were so young. When they had me, when they got to their 30s, they were going to things like that. So they, my mum used to say that they had parallel lives um, and I wondered about that because she was very much a career woman and she brought home the money and he had the jobs with the least responsibility because he couldn't cope with it. So she was enabling him to have quite a sort of comfy existence. Um, this is later on when, when sort of family settled into a rhythm and, you know, I would be getting towards teenage years. So she worships the ground he walks on. She bends to his will. She's sort of moulded from a very young age to almost like serve his needs. He has such a, I, I, I don't know whether it's codependent. I tend not to try and use too much terminology to understand my family because I think when you use terms, sometimes that kind of blurs and, and, and adds a template on situations that aren't necessarily that easy to define. But yeah, she certainly was very much in love with him he had to have everything how he wanted and as long as she catered towards that then there would be relative calm in him it's like he had to have for him to have emotional stability he had to have lots of conditions met including like lighting heating tv set up so it's perfect for his view he couldn't care less how anyone else saw it we had to be silent when we watched TV. So mum would sort of, 
you know, make sure that happened. We got told off if we spoke. She just sort of skittered around him, really. There was one time I remember when I'd come back to visit them in later life, but he was always like this. It's like he gets home from work and he's always had a bad day because he, everyone's incompetent. Everyone is less than him, although he's so socially awkward, he can't actually interact very well with people. He gets so angry. He's just a mess in that respect really but he wants friends but he struggles so he gets home from work with one of his beefs against the company probably and what happens is he drops his bag he then goes across the dining room to the place where he chucks his money then he goes and sorts his coat out and while he's going around his routine of getting back the atmosphere is just electric with his rage you know you could do I always felt it and I'll get on to a bit more of that it's the air is thick with it you know and you just I'm just so tense even though it's not directed at me it just triggers something in me that is so frightening and oh so my mum in those situations is almost like hovering around him talking to him trying to sort of like let him rant rant you know it doesn't really contribute a lot there's no point trying to calm him down it needs to run his course and it's just Everyone in a room has to be in the same mood as him. If anyone else is, you know, I don't even know if it's deliberate. He just can't handle anyone outside himself, really. And yet my mum is so directed towards him and his needs, whereas I see affection from him sometimes with her and they're quite jokey and playful, a little double act. But when the chips are down it's all about him really you know and he is lighter around her when all his conditions are met and he's having a more stable time you know so yeah she I would imagine you would call it codependent and and later we'll talk about you know the the uh, the, the sort of events that led up to me going no contact but when I wanted to go no contact with my dad my mum said we're a unit you can't have one without the other. It's just impossible. So very enmeshed. And that kind of enmeshment was something I struggled to get away from until, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, really, when something went on that I need to talk about later. But, you know, I was enmeshed with them. And and because of the way I was forming as a person, very unconfident, low self-esteem, loads of shame, loads of self-disgust that I couldn't place, you know, self-contempt I just hated myself because I just saw myself as the projection that was coming out of him you know you know I absorbed a lot of his kind of mood um and yeah we were pretty enmeshed so I think because I struggled socially and was very kind of anxious and I closed down quite a lot and so I didn't have friends over the atmosphere was too heavy you know so that in a sense kind of atmosphere isolates people you know how people with narcissistic traits tend to want absolute control over you and so that is you know it's such a bad atmosphere in my house so I don't have friends coming. So at a very young age here you said the word enmeshment and it feels like there's this cycle in what you just said where they've made you feel like you don't matter 
at a very young age. You're, you know, your dad is, is the ringleader of that. Your mom is enabling that, mm-hmm. you know, you have no safe place to go. You become this frightened child. And then because of that, it makes you a little bit socially awkward when it comes to other kids and difficulty making friends. Yes. And because of that difficulty of making friends, you then need to overly rely on your family as a means to socialize and be accepted. So this enmeshment then kind of occurs at a little bit of a deeper level because you're rejected in both aspects Mm. of life from your family and from these kids but your family's always there so since you're there with them the dominant amount of time you're now going to you know really be there to try and be accepted it may have been different if you were a little bit socially accepted by other kids you might have had a place to go to get away from and find acceptance there but because of that it might ingrain you a little bit further than you know we hear a lot about enmeshment on our show but in this case you know for you you're 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 going to be enmeshed most likely with them anyway but this might take it a little bit deeper which is why it took you possibly so long to have a lot of these realizations because people are going to hear your story today and realize you know it wasn't until you made friends later on in life when you really realized you know what was the truth of everything and that you are a lovable and likable person and people do like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but here at a very young age, this is a cycle that you get caught in, or at least from my perspective, sitting here is a cycle you get caught in that. And obviously you're so young, you don't even know that this is even occurring. No, that's um, the problem. So I guess with this enmeshment that happens, I guess discuss this enmeshment and how you're acting and, you know, what your role is in that at this age. Yeah, sure. So really, you're absolutely right. I thought that myself, that like, because I struggled socially at school, that I was further entrenched in the kind of the tyranny of what was going on at home. But more importantly, for me, it was like the template that was being built about who I am, like this sort of outline being coloured in by all these people and this abuse that I'm going through. And also coupled with the fact that nobody's intervening why the family don't say anything we don't sort of see a lot of people so there's no one sort of seeing what's going on you know so there is a lot of isolation you know and it's it, I have still but not so bad like this deep fundamental sense of of loneliness that is really hard to describe like I, it, it, it's so alone when you're that little like all you've got is the bounds of your existence are these three people who are giving you evidence of who you are all the time. You know, you see yourself reflected back in the face of your dad who has a disgusted look on his face while he's raging at you. You see your mum not really intervening and sometimes sort of being pretty cruel and thinking it's funny. She prided herself on her sarcasm. You know, she felt superior to people if she could pull them down and make everyone else laugh. And I was often the butt of that. She even had a term for it for me called high debating. So that was just something that she sort of took pleasure in, really. Like, 
humiliating a child and, and and them crying and then sort of expecting everyone to laugh at it and that's how I experienced my mum sometimes and then bringing in my sister as well enmeshed also but more popular at school more able to kind of integrate with other kids you know so she's there she's under the radar a lot but she does join in with the cruelty she it's weird with her it's like I'm superfluous at best and someone to sort of jeer at at worst really and I could never really properly understand her even into adult life because, you know, she's very distant from me, doesn't really want me to know the intimate details of her life or, you know, what she's going through or whatever. I'm a very entertaining presence for her children, you know, when the shit hit the fan later and I was going no contact and everything was falling apart. She was like, oh, there's a really big hole in the family. I, I saw you on a video doing the robot behind the kids and I missed it and I missed my family and it's like so I'm kind of there as someone as an entertainment but that's the slot I'm allowed in this family where I can't talk about the fact that I feel so invalidated and if I do it's like shut it down snuff it out you know however we can do it my lack of containment and need to you know connect with my own family was seen as something that needed to be squished you know so yeah definitely the enmeshment really was amplified maybe compared to other kids I don't know but it it, it just just put a wall up above my development I didn't get too far in terms of you know how to handle social situations so I took that into school with me so I remember being quite bossy and controlling myself, you know, dominant and talked about myself a lot because if you don't have any other input of like what friends are doing or other people are doing and you're so like locked into your lonely little world, you haven't got anything else to talk about. So looking back, I kind of crashed into situations where other kids were playing, didn't read the room, you know, and and, and they were baffling to me. You know, I do remember being on the edge of a playground, you know, in the new primary school because we moved about a lot. We we I went to six different schools in four different towns. So you carry that body language, lowered eye contact, sort of almost sort of closing in on yourself with your shoulders and your hunch and you know, and, and smalling yourself so you don't draw attention, you know, um, and turning up at a new school, you can't sort of bounce in there and understand it all really and make new connections. So that's certainly until like I reached post-16 education anyway. So I was hard to take, you know, for other kids and I didn't really know why. I just kept getting rejected. You know, you don't when you're at primary school and into like junior school and middle school you know you're just still developing aren't you but yeah that enmeshment really keeps you back I think that's why the loneliness is so fundamental because you know the experience at school as well but you know gradually as I've got on and particularly when I got into uh, a school where it was a grammar school girls grammar school and for the first time there wasn't that kind of bitchy competition for boys and I felt more comfortable for the first time. Like there have been moments in groups going forward from this where I feel more safe and I can just start to be myself 
or be the kind of better self I knew was in there somewhere, you know. Um, so I got to sixth form, which is the 16 to 18 education in the UK and like all girls school. And people were reacting to me very differently. You know, it was a lot, I was very working class. These kids, a lot of them were middle class, but they accepted me. Some didn't. There was still bitchiness and stuff. But there was a definite sort of sense of, I could see in people's faces a different reflection of me than I could see at home. So this started on a tr- sort of track which became sort of gradually gradual awareness of who I really was but it just gets engulfed by the wave of who I've sort of been molded to be unfortunately for a long time and eventually I do emerge from that so you're getting glimpses of who they are in one way but you're also being molded into something else which is part of this intergenerational trauma. So can you tell us more about this and, you know, this being passed along by your dad and all of your feelings surrounding this? He's learned some of what goes on for him. Uh, I think, you know, for him, his development got arrested at a young age, you know, and he is a very insecure man. He's like, I've revealed him like he's the skinny man in the Wizard of Oz now. I've opened up the curtain and and, and he was, I think, a more vulnerable man with narcissistic traits. Um, And just, I think, the strength of his insecurity, his self-hatred, his self-disgust, it was so strong that that sort of represented in the strength of how much I hated myself, you know, and it feels looking back now as the pieces are coming together is that he's got a lot of shame in himself and he can't handle it, causes him too much anxiety. So he is literally slicing that off and giving it to me. And then when you're young and your whole family have this reality and they have an idea of who you are, you take that on, you know, there's no other reality, especially in such an enmeshed family. So this is, I think, where I learned to be controlling and bullying as a, well, not bullying, but because I didn't have enough friends to bully, like, you know, I didn't have a gang, but, you know, just sort of, just not understanding that, you know, being controlling in a game or bossy is not going to win you friends, you know, because I just brought it with me. This is who I am, you know. So the messages I got is that I'm not lovable. I'm a piece of shit, like I'm worthless, I'm nothing I say matters, none of my emotions or feelings matter, you know, the the response I'm getting at best is a kind of pat on the head and humouring me, and at worst, absolute terror, you know, and a lot of that time was simply bleak, you know, for me, Um, and then other times were just awful, just silly, silly rages about stuff and because you don't have any ballast outside of that you're just really stuck in it it's like being in a prison it's been I mean a maze I couldn't get out of you know it's just relentless grinding chronic fear and misery really as a kid but of course because I was chatty and friendly as well there was still that in me you can't completely snuff out a person you know so I'd leak out and that would upset him as well. So, for example, we were close to my cousins on my mum's side and we were always together for, like, holidays and, and school holidays and stuff. And, like, I'd be playing 
<laughs> and I had such a loud voice compared to the others. And I was just so excited to have some fun in my life, you know. And it, it, you just hear him thumping up the stairs. I knew he was coming. Everything stops in the room. There's like this sort of, <gasps> of every pitch, you know. And he makes a beeline for me. It's like a charging six foot one man with massive hands. He's a very big guy as well. I'm this skinny little quivering wreck, you know. But at this point, I'm playing and like me enjoying myself is, is grounds for humiliating me in front of my cousin. So it's a phrase that he used to use is always you. And he used to put this straight pointed finger right in my face. And he'd have these eyes that would just bore into you. At the same time, you could just see they're saturated in hate and disgust and self and, and contempt for me, which I later realised is his own shit that he's put into me. And there's, there's this just crackle of energy thick in the air of anger, of like heat, it's soupy, it's just like tangible. And he has this sort of, shimmer across his eyes like a sort of like a mirage looking through a mirage you know that heat haze and that's his rage look at me and I've been laughing and playing and perhaps one of the worst things to do was lumping about you know when you you're a kid upstairs and you're sort of falling around and mucking about and but it was always me and I'm like what's always me what is it that is so heinous <laughs> It's like this monstrous, unnameable thing in me that makes me deserve that treatment. You know, no little girl deserves that, you know, even if they're a pain in the arse. It's just like, we don't do it with my nieces, my sister's kids, you know, we shower them with love. But this man, it's just, I was too triggering for him as myself. So he had to like snuff it out. So I'd be in tears, you know, I'd end up like, game's over, you know just a wreck somewhere no one comes to comfort you like and you just have to like soothe yourself really and you've just been humiliated in a room full of people no one's intervened that kind of backs up this whole repetitive story of your shit you deserve this you know and so you carry that around with you don't you you know all your life really if you don't work it out and the problem is really gets my goat is it's so senseless and unnecessary in my family for us to have put up with that if families talked about it instead of shrinking into little pieces of a chessboard to please this man you know we could have got him some help when things have transpired later and things have got confronted you know it shut me down shut me down don't want to talk about it you know and and if we just i could understand you know you guys have managed to put together some way of surviving this because we all went through it you know even him he's gone through so much himself and that's why he's like it but you know they've had their ways of minimizing denying mental gymnastics to make themselves feel okay you know looking upon me as someone who if only you did what we say we'd be all right you know not, nothing to do with me whether I'd be all right you know that's how it feels now so they kind of chucked me under the bus to save themselves. And I think it was only about four or five years ago I discovered the concept of the scapegoat. Hadn't heard anything about, you know, narcissism gets chucked around, but I, it's very late in the day. I've, I thought, oh, yeah, that could be the case, you know. But definitely the start of it 
this phase of understanding things was, you know, the scapegoat ideas. So, you know, you're dealing with all of this when you, all the, you know, all the way up here until the age of 18. Mm-hmm. And we've mentioned your sister uh, earlier. And for you, your sister at a certain point is getting treatment by your dad because she is a tomboy. Mm-hmm. But eventually your sister goes through puberty and doesn't get treated like she was once before a tiny bit. So how mm-hmm. does your relationship with her change? And I guess what is your, uh, you know, your, your sibling dynamic will be iffy your whole entire life, but mm-hmm. there could be moments where your sister might be your ally, you know, it, and that becomes its own minefield of trust of what to trust Mm. and not to trust so talk to us about like this relationship yeah it's interesting because i've never fully trusted her definitely not you know uh, i couldn't trust her relationship with me it 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 morphs and changes but i i was the older kid so i did like bully her as an older sibling as a lot of kids do you know we're not bully her just control her a little bit and stuff and you know be a bit sneaky about getting her to do more chores than me you know simple things like that um so you know I don't blame her for wanting space for me you know um I'm not perfect things have happened but she definitely was withdrawn that was how she coped with things you know and um that meant withdrawing from me um and, you know, she'd play with me sometimes as we sort of passed around each other at home as we we're getting older. But, you know, generally she'd sort of join in a game for a little bit and go off on her own, you know. So she was sort of hiding from it, you know, although she had a favourable relationship with my dad because I think she learned to contain her emotions and distance herself and dissociate, which I think my mum must have done as well to a certain extent. She developed sort of strategy of flying under the radar she used to play with him quite a lot. And then, like you said, she we, we she hit puberty and she told me in adult life, you know, when we have been allies in sort of small amounts or talking through our family life, although it's all denied by her now, you know, um, she opened up to me to say that when she hit puberty, dad's sort of relationship with her, he just completely withdrew. You know, and I've I've known that for years. She told me that quite a long time ago. And she attributes that to her need to always be in a relationship with a guy her safety is proximity to a guy whereas mine is is not transpired that way I haven't really had a proper relationship you know so what it kind of did with my sister is that sudden withdrawals made her very needy for a guy to be in her life you know and she has she's quite happy to forego her own needs for you know, what the guy wants, as as my mum did, you know, and sort of her recent um, uh, kind of withdrawal or our kind of rift at the moment, you know, she's recently got married and again, you know, I think she's got what she needs and I give her so little in terms of benefit for her relationship-wise that it's easier for her to walk away from me or for me to 
walk away from her is what's happened but it's easier for her to let me go really because she just has to be in proximity to a man like that for her to function whereas I used to look at that and think oh my god why can't I I mean literally I can't get close to people very well I was getting a lot better but you know lots of promiscuity never amounting to much you know um for me uh and I used to be really envious of her thinking oh she's so like cool calm rational she could endure a lot of stress just historical pilot on all the positive qualities I think my dad wanted to emulate went into her um or what parts of him that were there you know his good parts um so you know she'd float around and she'd always have a, a boyfriend and they'd have a very kind of um, on the surface, normal relationship, moving together and stuff, but she very much was sort of a domestic slave, really, for for her first big one. Um, and uh, so I was very envious of her. And now I look at it and think, well, she's successful in relationships with men because she moulds herself to the will of a very dominant man, you know, and I've never been able, there was one good thing, I won't take that kind of, dynamic I can't any kind of eruptions or violence or anything just triggers me or anger you know so I've walled myself away from that really so you know we've discussed that there is eventually a moment where you start to open your eyes Mm. but before that you know from the moment where you are now a let's say 20 year old until that point what is your life like what is your life like with your family and what is your life like I guess kind of like work-wise and socially you know from your 20s to your 30s and and into your 40s okay I'm gonna shunt down to sort of 18 to start with rather than go up to 20 but yeah my life really was you know so we we moved when I was seven from one town to another town then we moved I was 12 then we moved again when I was 15 and it wasn't until the sort of last place I went to school grammar school for girls that you know things started to feel better um I went to a really really rough school in a, a town a small town in Suffolk like it was an eye opener really I came from like this sort of countryfied middle school where you're like nine to 11 I think something like that um into this just this giant comprehensive high school this is sort of part of this transition where I'm kind of there's two there's another kind of world world emerging but I'm still existing in this family life of just a heavy atmosphere it's horrible at home you know and if I'm having fun I'm shut down on eggshells I'm trying to walk quietly on these eggshells they're too noisy you know it's like I just need to watch his every move like that's one thing you know when I'm around the space I need to know where he is in the space I need to read what is happening with him is he settled down is he asleep with the cricket on or something that's good that's good territory oh he's waking up like he's going to be in a mood just constant vigilance and assessment of that dynamic you know so you could rarely I could rarely get away from his influence in the house you know even if you were upstairs out of his orbit at any moment 
you could be called upon and you had to like run to attention like a soldier you know like if he came home from the supermarket with all the shopping like he would just growl at you if you weren't there quick enough to help him he's serving up dinner you've got to come down before he served it up watch him serve it up like you're sort of in some way he wants help but really he needs you there instantly because he says so I mean it's just that lots of things were definite transgressions like water on the bathroom floor or not changing a toilet roll but there were other things within that that were fluid you know that would one morning even be just overlooked and you know later on in the day it would be you know like violent temper um for the same thing that you did earlier you know so how are you supposed to live like that you know the rules are constantly changing there's some bedrock rules that you should never pluck up frankly you know and in order to manage all that as a kid you've just got to be on high alert all the time so it's 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 more you know it's manifested in a very kind of you know my my revs are too high I'm very kind of my nervous system is a lot more reactive than maybe other people's I, I find stability quite difficult you know and it's all because of I think you know temperament as well but I was just such a tense, nervous wreck looking for signals of violence. And because I was tense, it made me do things that would would bring more violence on me, like emotional violence a lot of the time. But like because I was so tense and shaky, I would spill. And if you spill, you're in a massive amount of trouble. And it goes so far as things like sometimes he would tell you what to bring to clean it up. Other times you'd just sit there and not say a word and you'd scurry off to get the things to clean up. Other times he'd march you into the kitchen to get you things that you need to clean up. And it always changed. So you could never get it right. You know, you'd have to have your best guess at what would get you less of a a, uh, a telling off, you know, a horrible telling off, you know, those eyes, you know, that kind of thing. It's not like you just sort of, there was never any tuition. <laughs> it was always like uh, done with, anger you know and and I lived in that so that's sort of the picture you know there were happier times you know like I said before if his all his little needs were met in every kind of sphere he might be in a better mood and then you know he would be generous or you know he might be nice and and those moments were few and far between and I loved them you know I just wanted a dad that would protect me and I loved it when he was happy I just wanted him to be happy Another example of sort of the the bind I was in is that we were kids. I must have been about 13 and it's like there's a wasp nest in the back garden and he's got some family around my uncle and one of his friends, one of his few friends, and they're sorting this wasp nest out and I think they're smoking it out or something. And like my dad stood there, back to me. I'm sort of somewhere behind him watching on. It's a Saturday. I'm happy he's busy. I could at least relax for a bit. And he realised the wasp behind him. And he turns around and then has a massive go at me because apparently (laughs) I saw the wasp there and didn't warn him because I wanted it to sting him. Uh, He just attributed so many thoughts, values, ethics, like negative traits to me of things that aren't don't even go on in my mind you know now I know who I am but there was just this painting of me as just wishing him harm and like manipulating all the things like cruelty that he would 
do to me. It's like I'm in opposite land, I've realised later. You know, so that's really what home life was like for me. And school was frightening. You know, there was a girl that once I moved to this massive comprehensive school, took it upon herself to bully me. And I talked to my mum about it and she said, like, just pretend it doesn't bother you. Just pretend it doesn't bother you and they'll stop it. They'll stop doing it. But it wasn't that simple. So this is really embarrassing. But there was this girl that used to like, I had a, I've got quite a large forehead. <laughs> and this girl told me I had a large forehead and she used to get the palm of her hand to just slap me in the middle of the head in lessons and say, slap head and make everyone laugh. And like because my mum had said, <laughs> just ignore it because they'll stop. I just used to let her do it and not react. And it's like, thanks, mum. <laughs> the extent of your care no one's coming up to sort of help at school although you didn't want to really because otherwise you know it'd be worse but you know I was getting it on all fronts I've scared everywhere you know and, and I, I I almost brought it on through my way I carried myself my inability my awkwardness you know at, at that point in school I was no longer the bossy boots I was as a kid you know I was just like trying to get through the day you know without putting my head above the parapet really and I got in with some really dodgy people and you know started my journey into drugs and alcohol and stuff so you know that was early on it was very rough um but then we happened to move to a complete opposite of this girl's grammar school like I told you and there it was less scary so I've always found in terms of friendships and stuff that if I'm in a situation where I start to feel comfortable, I can interact with other people and predominantly make them laugh is what I do, you know, as a way to kind of join in. But I can't, I can, I might get closer to one or two of the group. It's like a situation. So, for example, the situation of the sixth form common room where we all used to hang out when we didn't, weren't in lessons, you know, I'd make friends in that and uh, but nothing too close very superficial mucking around but I couldn't instigate drawing someone into my orbit outside that situation it's been like that in work situations eventually when I got comfortable in my first ever work situation at the late 30s you know it's always been like I can't make a friend because who would want to come and spend time with me who would want to love me who would who would even like me you know, that's the fundamental feeling I had, which kept me isolated as well. So there's always been like, so as I went into my 20s, so I get to 18. Somehow I've got good grades because I was naughty in sixth form and mucked around. And so I went off to university and for the first term, I was still suffering from the same anxieties. I had, couldn't get a place in the first year halls of residence I couldn't make friends my own age in the environment I was in I was in a shared house with people in their final year but they did adopt me and get me out and you know it was I I thought I wouldn't go back after Christmas I hadn't met all my gang of people that I eventually hung around with and then I started to make friends we started taking drugs recreational drugs ecstasy LSD speed and going out to all-night raves um, in this massive cathedral that was no longer a cathedral in a city in England and it was just amazing to finally be with a group of people that had one purpose which was to love each other and go and dance you know um, but unfortunately because of the drugs you know it wasn't long before 
people start getting sketchy. There's elements of anxiety on come downs, there's depression, you know, especially if you take a lot of MDMA, it really does affect you. It's a, it's a weird loss of self that is, you know, um, if you overdo it and we did, you know, um, but they were the people who showed me that I was nice and all right and, and someone to be around and they were all middle class and I was this working class kid that never thought I'd get out of town and here I am with people that want to be friends with me again I found it very difficult to instigate one-on-one time but I had a lot of gangs of people we used to sort of move around different houses getting stoned going to raves you know and I finally really felt that I was likable to some people. However, this old mindset, what you've grown up with, is is really hard to shift, you know, and there's not enough evidence for me yet that I'm all right. So it's kind of weird because I don't start really realising I'm all right until I'm far, far away from home, really, or, you know, the sort of late teens individuation from your parents. I'm finally out of that enmeshment for bigger periods of time and I can actually see reality. But of course, I'm carrying all that shit with me and it's sort of hard to kind of um, change that. But I know, I notice looking back, several little incidents which made me realise that I was carrying his attitudes and his ways and that controlling thing I had as a kid with me into adult life so I I couldn't understand why people wouldn't change a toilet roll you know that came from my dad you know and I I steamed in the kitchen one day and said you know come on what are you supposed to and they're like why does it matter and I remember thinking it doesn't actually I don't care but I'd taken that whole thing with me and 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 it, I, I thought god i'll drop that you know and there was another time that i come out of the bath and I'm like, who's used my shampoo and like this girl said how do you know someone's used it and i'm like well well i don't use it and it's gone down and she said well if you don't use it why are you bothered and i'm like i'm not so there's all these weird sort of patterns of behavior that i brought into adult life with me and the difference between me and my dad is you know, I had some of his crap with me. I behaved in ways that they said I did. But actually, it didn't really matter to me, you know, who I am. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, there's another time a few years later, but still in university, I was like, someone had done a prank and I went, oh, that's crap or something. And my friend turned to me and said, oh, Heidi, everything's boring, everything's crap. And I remember thinking, I said, God, yeah, it is, isn't it? And like just these negative ways of seeing the world and sort of rules, weird little rules, you know, <laughs> that I'd carried with me. But I realized it's not who I am. You know, it's, it was, I brought it with me. And there, as soon as I'm away from that sphere of influence and I'm seeing evidence to the contrary, I'm starting to get a better picture of who I am, you know. Yeah, so I'm really starting to get ideas of who I am from the faces and the actions of other people in my life, and I'm enjoying them. You know, I love my friends, and I, there are moments of camaraderie, probably drug-induced, when I'm comfortable and enjoying my mates and don't want to leave their company. But I remember still, you know, there'd be big groups of people taking drugs the next day after a club, and I did not want to wander off on my own and be by myself. I found it really hard to be alone when I was in 
a shared house with a few girls, I couldn't be the last one to go to bed. I couldn't be the person that went to turn all the light switches off and make the house dark behind me. I had this sort of ominous horror film type sense of like, you know, flashes of there'll be someone with an axe or, you know, really horrible imagery that would frighten me. So I'd start to see everyone rustling, getting ready for bed and stuff, and I'd be first up, you know. And that's, again, the kind of vigilance and fear that I brought with me where I'd be watching other people so that my safety and comfort wasn't, you know, uh, trashed. I had to be the first to bed because I couldn't lock up. And, you know, and, and so I hated being on my own. I was always in the company of other people. I just felt like, on my own, I suppose it just come to me now, really, I suppose, because because I was seeing who I really was and, and nicer qualities in me, in other people. When I would leave that, I'd just get this sort of despair and a kind of desolation. It was almost like I didn't really exist without being in the company of people who were showing that they liked me and I was more importantly interacting with them comfortably and building you know beginnings of relationships and things so that was really strange really that that was all coming out but at the same time it's powerful you know I'm only early 20s I'm still very close to you know being in in time being in that kind of prison with my family and I would still go back to them in the holidays. I'd nowhere else to go and I'd have to get a job. And um, I remember one time I went back to live with them after I'd left Judy as well, just for a little bit before I moved to another town. And I was still visiting friends up at uni and I phoned about Sunday night because I'm off my phone. And I said, uh, I'm not coming back till Monday. I'm going to phone in sick from work. He went mental about it. And the other end of the phone, he's like, you get back here now or I'm going to chuck you out. It's really abusive, horrible about it because I wasn't doing the right things going to work. You know, I was, I was trans transgressing his values and ethics of what you do as a good person. And he was still trying to control me. I, I just said, I'm an adult. I'll do what I want. <laughs> And hung up on him. And then by the time I got home, my mum had sort of placated him and stuff. But, you know, I was up against it still at home. So although I was going off to uni and it would be such a relief getting there again in the in the September term after the summer holidays, I'd be like, oh, thank God. It was so bleak where I was with my parents for me. Hardly anything said, you know, just just dull drudgery. In fact, there was a time, I thought about this the other day, where... It sort of demonstrates the fact that I wasn't allowed to have any joy or fun because it upset him. Um, I was home from university and it was sort of 95 probably. So we all had these crappy mobile phones that you got in the first instance, the ones you used to play Snake on, I think, the Nokias. Maybe that was a bit later, but anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so someone's texting me because we used to keep in contact in the holidays some of my friends and I for the first time in ages we'd ring each other up I had friends that rang me up but I'd sometimes dread the phone ringing because I wouldn't be able to speak because I'm so nervous about who I am particularly with a couple of friends who I really liked but felt were so much better than me but they kept stuck around and kept at it and I've got one today that I'm still friends with but so I'm texting and but dad's like told me off and I'm like, oh, it must be because of the bings. It's annoying him. So I turn the turn the volume off or the, the ring off. 
And then he's basically like, stop texting. So not like that the noise is ringing him up, uh, is winding him up. It is the very fact that I'm connecting with other people in his orbit. You know, I wasn't able to text again that night with the sound down in front of him. It's just astonishing, you know. It's like stopping me from enjoying other people you know that's the theme really enjoy, enjoying life and being able to express joy because that would just trigger rage in him and stuff so it's just yeah horrible oh, it's really hard <laughs> so I moved to the tower where my sister was with her Bella and they lived together in a basement flat it's a really cool town it's sort of south coast of London south of London on the coast and my sister lived there with this guy and I moved to this new place with this person that I was living with, friends with at university, this girl, but our relationship was already falling apart by the time we got to Brighton because I had to look after her basically and it was so draining. I had to take care of the bills, take care of the feeding and it was just too much. We fell out in the end, but she was all I had really and I didn't want to hang out with her. She kept inviting homeless people back and big issue sellers <laughs> Just because she was like lovely and wanted to help people. And I'm like, oh, this is my house. I can't take all this drinking and strangers in here. I was very sensitive to all that, really, very insecure feeling, you know. So I would run to my sisters. I wanted to go there every day because I just felt so lonely and didn't have anyone else but this girl. And I, I ended up going every other day, I think, because it was a bit overwhelming for my sister. And I'd get there, but I'd feel this sense of humoring me of looking down on the poor girl who is just this, you know, wreck of a person, you know, a car crash. That's how I felt she viewed me, you know, and all these other negative things that have been sort of, I've been sort of infected with from the family dynamic. I'm like the appendix of the family where all the toxins go, you know, and I'm still in her image, in her eyes like that, you know, but you know, it's not con I'm not constantly aware of horribleness and cruelty, but there can be some sort of sly snidiness that brings me down or a cutting joke that's really horrible that you're supposed to kind of suck up. But for the, for the most part, they both smoked a lot of weed and I just sort of sat watching telly with them. And I was working in this insurance company and it was just really dull, but going out and partying with workmates. So I started to make friends in work. You know, but this workplace, there's a lot of young people, but I was very um, nervous and awkward around them. But I eventually sort of got a little gang and I felt started to relax again. Again, I can't really instigate friendships outside of this circle because I don't feel worthy enough for anyone to make friends with me. And people started really trying. Um, and there was this guy who I think was attracted to me that used to really make an effort to make friendship with me and it was very touching but oh I forgot about this because my mum said to me growing up anyone that fancies you isn't worth having that was her line she's a joke I actually almost lived that that anyone that liked me I didn't want you know because obviously if they like me they must be rubbish you know such horrible messages you know so I couldn't really fall in love with anyone that wanted to be with me. I, could, I just didn't have access to what that was. And I remember thinking, well, I thought quite a lot that I have this kind of space or gap between me and other people that I can't bridge much less now. But this is sort of in my 20s where I can't invite anyone over. <laughs> 
and I can't go towards. It's like this is sort of the part of the circuit board of, of making relationships is missing and I don't get it. You know, I've seen for even as late as my PhD. So 2019, I saw people forming friendships in my cohort and I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> like, I'm quite baffled by it. Unless I really hit it off with someone straight away, I find it very hard to build friendships. And this is completely obvious that a guy likes me. I can't read it. You know, it's really hard. So I'm in this sort of period in my 20s. I'm like a car crash. I'm lurching from one situation that goes wrong to another. And most of that is around relationships with guys and housing you know it's expensive city I was trying to live in shared houses would break down and I'd be taking a lot of drugs and drinking and all you sort of live for were your weekends and you know it it just wasn't able to function very well and in jobs this job in, in the insurance company I had loads of time off sick because I just wasn't looking after myself I started to get depression and anxiety sort of early 20s and started to get medicated for it um and so I'd be going along for about six months and then I'd just sink into depression and that was awful really really bad just I don't know I was lost just completely lost there was no moorings to anchor to because I'm getting a bigger and bigger sense that my family are not really the best place for me you know but still getting into practically difficult situations where they have to help me out. Um, I'd have to ask for help. And that would, again, trigger rages. Like, if I ask for help, particularly if it's money, I need help with money, you've got it, can you help me? You know, it would be, I'd be completely ripped to shreds about the core of my being you know and the fact that I'm not doing what I should be doing to survive and that now I'm asking them and you know just they would eventually help me but I pay for it first like uh, or I sometimes I about twice I think I ended up having to go back and stay there for a few months and it was just again bleak and heavy and depressing and you know so even though I sort of progressed out of their orbit because of not being able to team up with a partner in life, because I had the kind of circuit board for intimacy and friendships like missing, it was really hard to keep myself afloat, keep myself housed, especially with the depression, anxiety, pulling me out of jobs or being overwhelmed, you know, by the work I was trying to do. So it's very hard to keep my head afloat. So I had to ask for help and you're not allowed to ask for help clearly because you deserve a verbal beating for it and 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 you know you seem to delight in that power really that power imbalance and giving him an opportunity to be an arsehole basically you know so eventually you started getting different jobs and more opportunities so tell us about this i start to do jobs which are more involved like working in a sort of marketing department in a school and you know I was good at things people would say I was good at things you know I'd be competent and actually quite creative and brainy and you know but unfortunately I can have all that you know have the skills for these jobs but because I haven't got the emotional stability the sense of identity that I'm comfortable with you know because I've got 
you know, these horrible messages swilling around in my head, not just my head, but every fibre of my being, you know, it's just you, you, who you are still, although there's sort of so much cognitive dissonance now, like I'm just getting all these messages that I'm not this, you know, but it's still battling with it, you know, it's really hard. So I'm getting opportunities now and I'm getting recognised. I'm like, I could actually do something that would earn me more than minimum wage and I could stop having to worry about being on the edge of homelessness all the time. You know, that's how it felt. Just catastrophic. Um, uh, But I just was finding that emotionally I couldn't handle it, you know. And eventually you do end up going and start traveling uh, the world to kind of get this freeing feeling while you're away from everything and you start meeting friends. But like other times in your life, you have a hard time staying close to these friends once you come back and eventually you fall into a depression and there's a lot of suicidal ideation that is going on and you're getting treated for that. And also when you came back to England at this time, you did end up getting a job and you like the people that you worked with. And then things started to get really expensive where you were living because of the cost of living. So what happens from here? So that was an amazing workplace. Um, but I got to the, towards the end of 2012. It was the autumn 2012. And I realized that I couldn't afford to live in this town anymore. And I'd been living in a shared house with these two guys. And when I first arrived there, they, one of them was a composer, the other one brewed at a brewery, and they were really cool. Again, why would they like me? The whole sorry scenario, you know, and, and, and I got very anxious. They were cooler than me in inverted commas, and I just couldn't talk to them. My, it's automatic. It sort of shuts down, and I can't bridge that gap. It's, it's so hard. I can't control that close down in a way and that distance, and the only place I can go to when I'm like that, when you have anxiety that bad, you can't put yourself anywhere. You, you don't know where to put yourself. Everywhere you try and sit, everywhere you try and stand, whatever you try and do, you're just so uncomfortable. There's no safety anywhere except that enmeshed, ridiculous family because I believe they had unconditional love for me because that's what families do. But obviously I was very primed to... You know, I was in a situation where that wasn't the case. It was very much conditional love. But, you know, you go back to your family when you, that's all I had, you know. I didn't have anyone very much at all, especially once I left Brighton. But I couldn't stay there because I was so anxious. And so I got the train back. I told work I was going to have a couple of weeks off. I think I was planning to go back to my parents' house, go on antidepressants, wait for them to kick in and then go back to work. You know, it's like I don't have time to get off the economic treadmill, you know, like. The margins are so slim in my world that I can't lose this job. It's a shit contract, you know, they all are. And so I've got to keep going. So the, the only course of action I think I can do, the only people that I won't feel completely uncomfortable with are my family. So I go back to my mum and dad's. And this is quite horrible to talk about, really. And uh, it's this, it's a horrible story, but what it did is it set me on a course for taking some responsibility for the enmeshment that I was still playing a role in and making plans to extricate myself from it. So I've gone home to my parents' house and 
this is the first time I've spoken really openly like about it and it, it it's caused me a lot of angst but it, it's something I think is important to shine a light on for me and also for other people to know that you don't have to be ashamed you can move through and pass something like this so I'm at home now even I call it home it wasn't a home but I didn't have another home like I, I just I was only just moved into that other place. I didn't really have any safety. So I go back there and I'm, as a family, we always drank with each other and this is no different. And um don't know where my mum is. It's, I, I, these, this point in time is very sort of hanging there in space and time. Um, I don't know what we were doing before these events happened and I completely forget it after. So my mum's somewhere. She usually sort of drunk early and then had a snooze some, somewhere. And there's me and my dad talking. And I'm talking to him about this house and the anxiety and how I feel. And we'd started getting closer the year or so before. I spent a bit more time with him. And he seemed to be softening towards me. And I'm like, this is older age. Brilliant, you know. And and he, he had this scooter and he gave it to me because he wanted to buy a better one. And we went scoot into the pub together had a few good times you know and so I'm talking to him thinking oh this is you know it's it's comforting to be tell my dad my vulnerabilities and have him be sympathetic and he was you know sometimes he wore his heart on his sleeve uh and so I'm telling him my most vulnerable stuff and he gets up from the other side of the dining table so we're diagonally opposite each other He's by the window. I'm into the room. He gets up. He comes around the dining table and he's by my right shoulder. I'm still sat down and he puts his arm around my shoulders and he starts kissing my face. And I'm like, instantly, this does not feel right. He never, never hugs me as a dad. You know, we give a little pet goodbye. Um, you know, that's it really. And so he sort of plants a kiss on my cheek, sort of like a lips on my cheek. And then the end, there's a tongue. And then there's one, I think, on my neck. And then there's one. And I'm just like, is this a, what's this? What's this? You know, I'm completely frozen in what I now know is a trauma response. And I'm like, I cannot work out what is going on and I can't do anything about it. So he does three, four, maybe five of these very slowly. I feel there's a romantic vibe to it, but I'm frozen and I, I'm still working it out because the thing that you would least expect to happen to you in your life in the next moment is what transpires. You know, it's like it's off the chart, mind blowing. You know, it's just that's why it's so traumatic anyway. So my hands are like in my lap, I think. And he gently like clasps my wrists and then holds them together. And then he's lifting them up as he's sort of standing up, forcing me to stand up with him. And then he puts my arms around the back of his neck and I'm looking up at him. And this now is not feeling good. This is not, this. I'm starting to realize through freeze it the freeze time there's there's evidence building up that I need to snap out this and, and move away you know um it's all happening so slowly in my mind but so I'm there and then I don't know if he presses against my boobs but he presses against my crotch waistband area and he is aroused and that's my dad and I'm like 
oh my god i instantly snap out of it i jump back i sort of sit down and i remember looking at him with this sort of hurt confusion came across my face i'm like what and he just turned around wobbled off went into the sitting room and sat on the sofa and i'm left with that i'm like staring at the space still all the adrenaline and all that fight flight coursing through me and i'm like he's drunk he has no idea what he's just done he's blackout drunk that's what it is that's that's all it can be i couldn't entertain the idea that he felt like that you know and then i forgot it i'm not kidding i couldn't remember it at all until he did it again nine months later and the nine months later maybe a year later one was like he went to kiss me again in in, in a certain way <laughs> like i'm like what the fuck are you doing and he Pulled back instantly, he trotted along the grass because we were outside in the garden summer evening and he was going, sorry, sorry, sorry. And he looked so pathetic, this big six foot two, one giant of a man who's had such power and control and fear-mongering dictatorship in my life. He's hunched over, scurrying away, saying sorry. Now, you can't do that to a person and then say sorry. It is meaningless, you know. And I... I was sat there and then suddenly the tsunami of the previous event just washed in and I'm just, I fought back, he's gone and then I'm just left with that and I couldn't forget it then. And the weird part of it was, is between the two incidents, I couldn't remember it. Um, I'm still thinking oh I'm getting close to my dad so I've got to pub on my own with him you know he wants to go and see a band a gig in London and I live on a boat by this point the second time uh near London and he's I said yeah come and stay at mine I, you know, I think back to that I'm like how did I not know how did I completely like complete amnesia and it demonstrates that I feel still felt safe-ish with him in this new you know father-daughter relationship as he was getting close and being more fatherly, that I would spend time alone with him. You know, I was that amnesia about it all. And then it was just hell for a decade. Just so hard to describe. It is the dumbfoundedness of that course of events happening to you. You think about the moments before, you would never imagine that was the next thing to happen to you in your life. And it's your dad. You know, there's no penetration. He didn't force himself. He he walked off drunk. He was drunk the first time, but the second time he wasn't as drunk because he's a bus driver and he had to get up for work the next day and he, he wouldn't be, he could be over the limit. He could get breathalyzed, so he's careful. So I knew he wasn't as drunk and I think that was part of the thing that crumbled the anxiety defense of forgetting it is because it's like, oh, can't argue with that now, can you? Um. And I just, I just didn't know what to do with that. And and I very quickly realised that I no longer can ask for help from those people. I can't go and live there if I'm, uh, if I become homeless again because I'm still no boyfriend, no partner, no unable to kind of look after myself properly because there's only one income. It's so expensive, yada yada. So I know, right? I've got to take some responsibility this is the words I'm using now it wasn't necessarily how I thought of it at the time for the enmeshment so I realized I had to do something I've got 
talents and skills and capabilities that I've been told I've got from other jobs. I need to think about how I'm going to get a professional job at the same time as drinking like a fish now. You know, I'd always drank too much. I'd always smoked a lot of marijuana, dissociating, escaping. But this went through the roof, actually, at that time. But at the same time, I'm working in a school for kids with behavioural difficulties because I'm thinking I'll either be a social worker or a teacher. So I set myself on a course of action gradually to get myself towards doing a master's degree. But in the meantime, I'd, I can't even really tell you what was going through my mind on a day-to-day basis for a long time, except that I'd be going about my business and then I'd be blindsided by a memory. I'd have nightmares nearly every night at the beginning. I still have one a month of you know him taking that further and it's just disgusting and upsetting and just it's not it's not a way to have your dad portrayed in your mind you know and it, it's like who is that person you know I knew he was horrible to me I knew he was cruel I knew he made me feel like shit but I didn't know he was that kind of dad you know there are plenty of them I didn't think he was one of them I was a social worker I've met them you know and it's just like But I didn't want to tell anyone and I didn't tell anyone to protect my mum and sister. And also because I didn't have anyone else really solid to rely on. Not that they were solid, but they were the most solid I had, you know. So I couldn't, you know, let a bomb off in my family. I was too mentally vulnerable. I needed them. Didn't want my sister and my mum to know what he was like even, you know. I didn't want them to see him like that. But I knew that, you know, and I had to still play a role in that family. So because I didn't want my mum and sister to know and because I didn't have much of a social life, I used to go back there once a month. I continued to do that. My sister would bring the baby who was there at that time and we'd, you know, do what we normally do. I knew what he'd done and he knew what he'd done. Everyone else was oblivious and I noticed he couldn't make eye contact with me hardly at all anymore. I could see the shame in his eyes. Um, I would be in a room with my mum and my sister and the kid and then I'd have to read it again. They're getting up to go. I'm reading it and I'm like, I can't be in a room on my own with this man. I just can't feel, not only is there that angry, crackly atmosphere going on, there's also... um, you know, that that unsaid thing that he did to me. You know, I never say that happened or whatever. It's he did it to me, you know, just to give him the culpability, you know. So um, going back to that house, playing a role in that family, he knows what he's done, I know what I'm done, incredibly uncomfortable, having nightmares about him assaulting me while I'm staying in his house you know waking up the next day knowing what's gone on in my brain and but I knew at that point he didn't have a leg to stand on his rages were more general from that point on there was a shift I started to build a sense of power in myself in terms of my ability to look after myself as things time went on. I was still drinking a lot, but I was really trying to build the experience to have a career that would mean I was more independent from that dynamic, you know, and I started working on that. But 
I was trying to do this job, trying to change this career with this just this sludge in me. It wasn't always present, but you can't tell when that's going to hit you. I couldn't have a sexual relationship for eight years, you know, and that was from the age of uh, 37, he did it the first time, 38, until, you know, I was 45 or so. So that was a good eight years where I just couldn't date, I couldn't think about it, couldn't. So, you know, I have to live with that. And I have to live with sort of the deceit with my pet, my mum and sister and push it all down and just try and get on with it. And, and I'm still seeing them every month and playing a role in that family. So just living with that all the time is, is such a lot to deal with. It's so hard to keep going. But I did. It's weird, actually, when I think about it, that I struggled more with careers before he did that than after. I set myself on a course and committed to a course of action to get myself to do a master's degree in social work and I achieved that you know and became a social worker but again got too overwhelmed and couldn't do it but you know like it almost in a way freed me from that dynamic because it set me on a course again to free myself from them you know so yeah so basically I was so pissed off with it all that I thought, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to move on from this just weight of shit I'm carrying without just confronting him with it. And, and I talked to my best mate and uh, said I'd do it. And then me being impulsive, one Saturday night, I just, like, I write and it doesn't, I don't even edit it. It's just, it pulls out fully formed narrative. Like, just, it was just everything. You know, I'd, I'd not accused him. I said to him what he did had really screwed me up, not just what he did to me in 2012 and 2013, my entire life, and listed examples. And, you know, I I remember in social work, like, learning about fucked up parents who attribute negative negative attributions to their children. So, like, that was sorry. He thought I was evil enough to want him to get stung by a wasp and that I wasn't telling. I didn't care. You know, I wasn't even focusing on that. But, you know, it's all that sort of stuff was coming up. Like everything I'd learned up to that point, I just let him have it with, let him have it. And um, I just sent it. And at the end of it, I wrote, well, do you want to tell mum or shall I? You know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. It's like I've had this grenade in my lap that he pulled the pin out of in 2013. And I finally thrown it, you know, because I couldn't hold it anymore. It's too hot or <laughs> whatever. It's just, I know I laugh, but sometimes words and humour are the only way to get through things, you know. So anyway, I texted my mum and said, do you know what's going on today? And she just writes, yes. I said, has he told you? She writes, yes. I said, well, what do you think? And she goes, well done, your dad's in bits. And I'm like, that encapsulate what you were talking earlier about the fact that I am, you know, my existence is bare <laughs> with them, you know, like that my very existence set my dad off all the time. But like, you know, that has happened. He's done that to me. It is, I mean, it would blow anyone's mind, even if, okay, so he's drunk. Even if he just told me that and not done those actions, it would flip your mind out, wouldn't it? My dad feels like that about me. It just goes against biology. It goes against, like, evolution, social contravention, everything you know to be, like, how things should be, you know? And, like, I had PTSD from it. 
and she says, well done, your dad's in bits. And I wrote back, I said, I've got PTSD. <laughs> like, come on, you know, and she's like, what did she say? She's, I think she said, she acknowledged it, but, you know, I would want, if someone told me that had happened to them, I'd be like, oh my God, how are you? But unfortunately, because of her enmeshed relationship with dad, what we said might be codependent, you know, I knew she wasn't going to leave him. You know, it wasn't like I, she's, I thought she'd go. I'd love it if everyone just turned around and went, oh, my God, what an evil man, and then walked off with me. But obviously we know this doesn't happen. The victim gets blamed eventually. But the funny thing is, is in 2014, I text, I emailed him, like, because I, it was the first time I'd said about it, and I said it to a doctor, and I didn't say anything about it again until like eight years after where I told my friends and then a year later I outed my dad to the family and like the doctor said did it happen to your sister why don't you talk to your sister I thought I can't talk to my sister about this it's only a year later so I think well I want to know if anything happened so I sent I was drunk living on the boat like a little tiny area in a boat just sitting drinking on my own after work weekends and I texted him and well I emailed him and said did it happen to you nothing nothing happened to her but what exactly do you think happened to you and that sent a chill up my spine because I don't remember anything he did to me as a kid I do think that you know he, if he could hate me it distanced himself from whatever goes on in his pants and he didn't act on it you know because of that I don't know but that point where he said it depends what you think happened to you I thought well is there something else like is he hedging his bets just in case and I I, I still can't remember anything I have no idea but um I said you know and I've been screwed ever since you know and I said and twice and he wrote back and said all I know is when very drunk I kissed you it was not acceptable behavior and it won't happen again so I've got proof you know and I apologize again and it's like well that's apologizing unless it's it's like how can I make this better what can I do is meaningless as far as I'm concerned because you didn't make anything better but he I did have it written down by him an admission in my mind you know so when I outed him I also sent that and so he doesn't even deny he did that in a way right but he, he admits to some of it kissing me and it wasn't appropriate it wasn't acceptable behavior my mum and my sister know this but it's basically this spectacular mental gymnastics that's gone on to minimize the situation deny my reality as has always been you know in order for them to feel comfortable with this heinous act against me they've got to create stories in their mind which again in some way demonizes me and I suppose that wasn't particularly evident in my mum's response but it was very much like there was no care for me you know so it sort of indicated in my mind that you know that's where she was with it but my sister reacted differently and she's like the thing was I sent it in a voice note and I think because she could hear my voice she knew it was genuine and that I was you know, visibly shaken up, well, audibly shaken up. And, and you know, she, I described it as I've described it to you and she couldn't argue with it and she believed me and 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 she had the evidence where he'd admitted it, you know. Um, and so she's, her first reaction was, um, I don't know what to say. I want to support you, but my head's a mess right now. 
but it felt in some way supportive. Then it was not long after it was my birthday and it's also my niece's birthday three days before and we're always together with mum and dad during that time. Now planning to go up during that time to mum and dad's before you know I've I've outed him and uh, she still goes and I'm like well I'm over here just having said all this and I'm a right mess and now, if it was me, I'd go to you, you know, instantly. I've always cared about her and I've done my best to try and help her in late, you know, as we've grown into adults and stuff. Love her to bits, but, you know, just don't seem to get that back. But um, so she goes there and I should have seen where this was going. So this is like three years ago, you know, that what transpires later you know, this was the sort of early indication of it. Where she feels safe is in proximity to him and with my mum, because she always has done. So anything that goes wrong in our family do- dynamic of that proportion, she'll go there for safety rather than me, you know, and I'm a mess and no one's helping me. In the end, I told my nan, the first thing she said, what do you think that news is going to do to me? And it's like, no one really is turning around and going, oh, my God, you poor thing, you know. It's a big thing that's happened to me, and all my close family are just doing that, you know. I tell my cousins they're much more accepting because they saw a lot of what went on as visitors to the house in terms of his rages towards me, but they've got no idea what went on behind closed doors, you know, between visits, which was bleak, terrifying, or sometimes okay, you know. But... um yeah, so they're really supportive. Uh, my mum's sister, my aunt, is really supportive, but in a very pragmatic, won't talk. I'm not talking about it with her kind of way. Um, and then there's events leading up to, you know, May end of May this year, where I finally have to cut contact with my sister. I cut contact with my both my parents. Well, this has all been going on. My sister split up with the father of her children and she's got another guy very quickly. Um, but she had been seeing him for two years but hadn't told anyone. And so they move in together very quickly. I find it uncomfortable. I feel quite icky for the children. Um, there's a lot more affection between them and it's in front of the kids and it's just a bit, I don't know, I felt very uncomfortable about it. But the kids seem fine. And then suddenly they're going to get married in March 2023 this year. And it's it's June 2022. At that point, I've been doing my PhD. I've been going to the gym a lot. I'd stopped drinking for a while. I was doing really well. And I've visited my sister on numerous occasions and spent time with the kids. And I've just not talked about it, um, about what happened. I'd kind of not moved on, but I'd got to a more level place where I was able to look after myself and it wasn't so front and centre of my mind. And my sister's going to get married and she says to me, me and me and uh, want to come up and visit you. We want to spend time with you without the kids. Well, that's nice, I thought, you know. So anyway, um, they come up and visit and I think Basically, they didn't bring the kids with them because she was going to rip the band-aid off. She said to me, can we talk about the elephant in the room? I'm like, what? I said, there is no elephant. I said, you're the elephant. At that point, I'd sort of not really thought about it or or talked about it that much with anyone, you know, let alone her. 
Um, and, you know, she's basically trying to refute my hypothesis that the reason he pulled away from her when she hit puberty was because once she saw her developing into a woman, it stirred feelings in him he didn't like. And that he probably had feelings like that for me as a kid, but in order to distance himself and stop himself doing it, he meted out all his hatred on me instead. You know, there's a fine line between love and hate. It was a very kind of passionate intensity of anger towards me. Instead, he would be able to give himself permission to come in and grab me and interact with me in a very intense fashion, whatever he needed to do to offset some of his own anger and shame. I don't know, whatever it was. I just got this sense that this had been going on for him for a long time and that my mum might have known about his feelings and that that's why she wasn't so shocked. I don't know. But my sister refutes that. And she has to because she's got two teenage daughters or coming up to teenage years. And if he has those sorts of feelings, then they could be quite dangerous to them. So basically, people just want their lives to be undisrupted. They want the status quo. So they're going to adopt any kind of threads of narrative that they can amplify. And then any kind of threads of narrative they can sort of stamp out or minimize to in order to enable themselves to live with something so hideous and carry on with their lives. That's how it seems. So, but by doing that, they're completely invalidating my experience and they're completely invalidating who I actually am. They're refusing to listen to who I actually am. They won't hear me. And it feels as though it is because their sense of self, the way the world works, is so heavily predicated on their view of me as being inferior, of being of, of being the vessel for all the crap of the family, that, you know, they can't look at it. It's impossible for them to look at it. I'm as toxic to them as they are to me. They're as toxic to me as I am to them. Because they can't look at it, I can't have a relationship with them. And because I want them to look at it, they can't have a relationship with me because looking at it shakes the whole house cards that the whole system was built on around to keep him in a good mood, essentially. You know, so this is where we've got to. Like, she came up in July, she ripped the Band-Aid off, and then the wedding was coming up in March. Initially, I was going to be made of honour. I even started writing a little speech for it. And then I'm like, the penny started dropping. Oh, shit, I'm going to have to see him. Now, I, I haven't seen him for three years. And the thought of it just brings on that terror again and disgust and such nasty, horrible feelings that I decided I couldn't go and didn't go. Uh, and it was sort of brushed under the carpet. I'd injured my finger, so they said I couldn't come. So at this point, you've come to terms with you always being the scapegoat of your family. And, you know, with all these realizations, there's all these stresses and traumas that are going on from a lifetime of everything that you've dealt with. And you eventually had to quit your Ph.D., and you moved into a converted van. But you also did go to the police to report your dad about what he had done. So walk us through what happens from here. Yeah, so now we're moving really to the point where the the, the, the floodgates open and it, I'm just tripping over epiphanies because basically I decide I need to go to the police about my dad. 
you know, so I report him to the police and they my sister didn't think it was a crime and that the police, she didn't know what the police were going to do, to be honest. She said, as they sort of rallied round to try and manipulate me out of doing it, my sister said that it's my failure to commit and find inner peace that's my problem um, and that that was going on long before what you did and so literally the problem is located in you. You know, that's essentially what I got. And the vitriol and the viciousness and the lack of care and concern that was in her communications was astonishing, but not surprising. It was, again, a puzzle piece fitting that that helped me to see. She's the last of that triad of people that have, have been a damaging place for me to be. And she, I can't be around her now, to the point where I'd sacrificed my relationship with my nieces to it's that dangerous for my mental health to be around that you know and like it's amazing how no contact for me has just catapulted me into where I'm at now like it you know it's it's a hard mindset to shift about yourself but you know we've talked about all the kind of signals from anyone else that's not my family that I'm an all right person and I I don't mean any harm I'm empathetic I love people I love interacting with people all the things that I couldn't express are all coming up but also obviously it's a strong shadow world that keeps lapping up and grabbing me occasionally but I notice it and I can you know do a lot of work on like recognizing those parts of me being triggered and sort of looking at you know, other ways to soothe myself and stuff. So the things that have really worked for me really have been meditation and mindfulness. Um, I, I don't do it as regular. You know, you know, it's like when you go running and you think, wow, I should do this all the time. You know, I do have phases of it when I've got more stability and I'm, I'm gradually kind of increasing the amount of healthy activities that I do, you know, and, and living a very kind of simple life now. It's almost like an invisible hand stopped me, said, like, quit your PhD, go and sit in that field and think about it for a bit because you're not getting anywhere. You know, it's almost like being given this opportunity to suddenly work through it. And at first I did get quite manic and had to then go back to the psychiatrist and get put on some antipsychotic medication. Although I don't have psychosis, it helps me sleep and it balances me out more. Um, because I was just so many epiphanies are coming up I'm recording myself I'm writing I can't sit down I'm animated you know and and whittering onto myself and it was getting a bit much and I could see mania coming but just so much has happened so much that you know it's still very fresh I think it's still I think one of the pinnacles for me noticing that I'm on the right track as I went to see some friends down south for a walk there were a few people there I didn't know in the past. I'd have shied away from them. And there's one guy, and for the first time in my entire life, I managed to like hold his gaze for the, my entire point without looking away because I felt safe and comfortable in myself. That's made me quite upset to think that. Because it's such shame that, you know, someone has to go through all that. It's so senseless. It's so unnecessary. It's so, who or what, you know, it's so wasn't me that I was made to feel I was and it's so sad but you know I haven't had any choice but to figure it out you know and now I can fulfill my potential the way I look at it is the PhD was not suited to me not the other way around I know that in the right environment with the right stress levels and sort of some nurturing and love 
I can do really well. It's just I've been really up against it. <sighs> so there we have it. <laughs> I'm not speaking to my family, but I can honestly say I've never felt better for longer periods. You know, it's a slippery fish. You know, sometimes I can keep hold of it for a bit, this sort of much better feeling and a true sense of who I am and my identity, which is a good egg, essentially. I mean, no one, no harm. I want everyone that comes into my orbit to have a lovely time. And they do. My friends came up who I don't know as well as some other friends, but they came to visit me. We had a fire. I fed them. I could see the joy in their faces being in my environment and I had joy in my face interacting with them. All I want to do is just enjoy other people and you know not meddle with things or manipulate or boss people around or be controlling all those things I carried around thinking I was because that's not me and I'm amazing and I'm I'm you know I've come through a lot I'm surprised I'm still here but I do love myself now and I have a lot of self-compassion and we're working on it basically and everyone who's listening right now is giving you a big hug <laughs> as well and and, and, and thanking you for for being here with us today. But before we go, do you have any words of wisdom for everyone that's listening? I think, I mean, I always have words of wisdom for it all the time. It's hard to pinpoint it, but, um, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you've got to face it. Actually, for all the people with narcissistic traits out there, we could help you. We could talk this through. You could get help. It's a very tough pattern to break. It's very ingrained. But, you know, if we'd all talked about it and you guys accepted some of the anxiety in yourselves, were willing to face some of that, we could have shared it. It's a family problem. So any scapegoats out there, it's a family problem that you've been lumbered with. And bless your heart, you know, it's really hard. It's really difficult. The gaslighting, the entitlement, the invalidation, the enabling is really hard to understand because you actually had better relationships with them at certain points, you know, being thrown under the bus completely, but you can come out of it because it, it, it's inevitable. You can't squish a life force down. You can't squish that vivacity. If you're willing to face yourself, you will find who you are. And, um, it's worth it. Definitely worth it. A lot of work, but worth it. Well, Heidi, I really want to thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story. And, you know, you've been dealing with this your whole entire life. And there's so many people out there that are going through the exact same thing as you are. And today you really helped them. You gave so many people a lifeline as well to hear how you're doing and, you know, mm. the way that you're dealing with things and the way you're viewing yourself now is important for other people to hear. So just a really big thank you uh, for being here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's been quite helpful to kind of, it's been running around in my head, all these sort of fragments of it and to have it drawn together is, is great. So thank you. Well, thank you, Heidi, for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest on our survivor stories like Heidi was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. 
And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday nights, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And it is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences with all of them and make friends too. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go visit DomesticShelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers. And Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they are looking to expand into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage. Storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Heidi, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>